yes, you can take those things and and try them, (laughs) try them on for size. Like, what does it feel like to try that on? It didn't work for me, you know? And so I had to really figure out what does work for me. And that was when I had that conversation, but the people pleasing thing goes back. Gosh, I mean, that goes back to childhood. I think this is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Mindset Rx, and your host. And I believe mindset is a one-size-fits-one domain. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. If only what worked for everyone else also worked for you. The amount of times you hear, oh, I just started meditation and that fixed all my mindset challenges. You know, when I began journaling, that solved all my issues. It was a psychedelic trip that changed my mentality. Well, great for that person. But what about for you? 99.9% of your DNA is genetically identical to mine. That doesn't mean we should follow the same programming, even if we have identical goals. It doesn't mean our coaches should speak to us in the same way, even if we go to the same gym and have the same coaches. It doesn't mean my mindset practice and yours should be identical. Mindset is a one-size-fits-one domain. Are you driven by numbers and quantifiable data, or is it the feeling that drives performance? Do you want to succeed because deep down you want to be loved? Or do you want to succeed because you want to prove yourself to the world? You are you, not only because of your parents' genetic data being passed down to you, but because of their parents' DNA sequences being passed down to them. And so on and so forth since the first living entity on Earth. That's incredibly unique. Then you have to consider the fact that every single experience you've ever had, every conversation, every reprimand, every pass you made in your school team, every particle of light entering your retina has shaped you in one way or another. You are unique, beautifully so. So you've got to find out what works for you. That means certain failure many, many, many times. That means stepping away from conformity and safety. That means being taken out by the unknown. But if you really want to express the most brilliant version of you, you need an idiosyncratic approach. That is an approach that is shaped to your needs. Of course, follow the principles that we know work, but find which of those principles you need to apply to you most. In this interview with US Olympic swimmer, artist and Founder of Rise Athletes, Caroline Burkle, the main theme is this one of finding what works for you. Specifically, are you a thinker or a feeler? Expect to also learn how to find your one-size-fits-one approach, how you can regulate your nervous system better, the warning signs you're not regulated, when the split times hurt performance, and much, much more. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe to get more interviews with athletes and coaches to take you to your next level. Caroline, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. It's a pleasure. 
thank you for joining me. It's like, yeah, I've been really stoked to um, to speak to you ever since, ever since chatting with Logan about you and kind of doing a bit of a, a shallow dive and then deep dive into what you've been up to and your uh, perspective on things. I've been super excited about this. So starting off, like most people who listen to this podcast are going to be from the CrossFit world. I think most people, yeah. 90% of people. Um, <laughs> so they won't have a an understanding of what it's like to train to be a swimmer. Um, so like, what's it like as, as a kid going into that, that Olympic swimming, swimming route? Well, first of all, I do love seeing swimming in the CrossFit games and in all sorts of competitions anymore. It, it makes me so happy. <laughs> um, but as a kid, you were saying um, just what's it like being a swimmer? growing up yeah like what's what's like because there's a there's a point where you get obviously funneled towards a highly competitive sport and like and it's it's enjoyable to begin with I'm guessing yeah I gosh it's such a, a blur of a memory of sort of how it all began but I do know that my dad was a swimmer and we grew up with this incredible outdoor rock quarry pool that we swam in in Kentucky and it was um it was just it's this basically this giant fun zone where, you know, you have a blast when you're there, but there's a 50 meter competition pool. Um, and you know, I grew up there. All my days were spent there from morning until night. And that was just where we hung out. It was where we were all day long. And so I grew up around the water and being, um, someone that is, I'm, I'm a, I guess you could call it, I'm a water sign. (laughs) So I, I do enjoy being around the water. It feels natural to me. And, uh, so it's that blend of, is this nature or is this nurture? Like, did I grow up around the pool naturally, uh, loving it, or did I grow up and, and just love it because I was around it all the time. And I think it's a blend of both, but I do have a very, um, natural inclination to be in the water at all times. <laughs> like I feel more comfortable in the water than I do on land for sure. <laughs> um, it's, it's a special gift to have and it's, funny because a lot of swimmers always laugh because being on land is like a bit awkward (laughs) in some ways (laughs) I wish I could feel like that my experience swimming is more drowny than most and so (laughs) I'm very envious of that you mentioned your your dad there um and I think he was in Rich Roll's podcast you're talking about like how he was a tough figure um Mm -hmm. but you didn't kind of I don't think you dived into too much from what I saw um what did you mean by that Well, it's interesting because, you know, my brother and I talk about this all the time as far as, is what it's like to grow up with a very highly motivated set of parents. You know, my mom was uh, a professional tennis player. My dad was a competitive swimmer throughout college and then started all of his own businesses. So I think we just grew up in a very driven household. And so it's interesting because we didn't have a lot of pressure to compete in sport or to be the best or anything like that. There was never pressure there. It wasn't this forced experience where I'm going to put you guys in sports and you're going to do these things. Like there was never that feeling. I don't recall that once. Uh, I don't, I know my brothers don't either, Uh, but it, it was just a driven mentality. And he was just a, you know, he's a, uh, a logical straight edge. Like this is, this is just what you do and and get it done and you'll be fine. And and that's that, you know, which is wonderful. My mom's more, uh, you know, spiritual and creative and, 
um, just has a different mind. So they're very opposite. And I think growing up around both of them allowed us to see the differences in that, but yeah, he, he definitely is means business. <laughs> He'll get his jobs done. And I think that's where we learned that trait. Uh, but it's interesting to think about the difference in pressuring kids versus just having that natural mentality of getting the job done and being able for us to learn from him in that way. Um, but yeah, he's a tough cookie. <laughs> he's, a, he's a tough egg to crack there. His, his means business all the time, but he's also a lot of fun. Yeah. There must've been so many times when that was like useful when I think you mentioned that you were kind of a, um, kind of free to kind of take your performance a bit less easy some or a bit less uh, strenuously sometimes and be a bit more chilled with it. Um, but to have that must've been benefit, but also to counteract that with, I suppose the, um, the typical display of more nurturing female response of your mom as well. Yeah. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the power of question asking that they did for us was really How so? ahead of the times in many ways. I think just asking tons of questions. How did that feel? What was that like? Tell me more. Um, and that was a gift they both had. And I think because they were athletes, they could understand that that is a way that we would figure things out is if we were asked questions instead of told what to do. Uh, my club coach growing up was the same way, same exact way. And I think I learned wonderful things at a young age. And yes, that, that did shift and things got difficult throughout college with, with that kind of mindset of, I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it versus let me ask you questions. But I do think that instilling that in a young athlete is so important, incredibly important so that we can figure out what we feel and have that dialogue about it um, so that we can kind of sift out what we're experiencing as a young athlete in a highly competitive environment. What's the alternative? Like, I think it's worth verbalizing that. The alternative of, um, of, um, of providing questions and oh, yeah, you know, just yeah. shouting demands and commands. And this is how it should be. Which in one side fits all. Yeah. Which seems like it was the kind of, dominant strategy of coaching like I, the yeah. kind of highest level of coaching that I've had was from um, a, a fairly high up arm of the British military and that obviously yeah. has a lot of shouting and like it's part yeah. of the job um, but it's also like it definitely has its restrictions too yep. and funnily enough as you progress more you get to a more inquiring mind you, know, you start off with quite shouty and then you get to more towards here are some questions here are your options choose the best one um, yeah but yeah, it's, it seems like that's uh, an, a hell of a gift to be given as a kid to have yeah. that kind of questioning parents. and Yeah. And yeah. Because it all shifts and changes too, as you get older. And it did for me, I, you know, my college experience was similar to that of, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shouting and there's a lot of things happening that maybe weren't as helpful. And it doesn't mean that it didn't uh, impact in some way, but it, is it the most conducive to high level performance? Mm -hmm. Probably not, you know, and that, that was something that I did struggle with and also understood as I got older, the different tactics in coaching and the different ways that that can come across. And it's everybody to each their own. Everybody has a different style that they respond to, but definitely I did not respond very well to that kind of style. I think I, um, was pretty independent as well. So I, I enjoyed 
being able to figure things out myself. I enjoyed the, just having that support and that inquiry and, mm. and conversation and dialogue about performance and about my swimming and about, uh, you know, what I was going to do to execute this race or this practice instead of this is what you do, go do it <laughs> like that. It, you know, it didn't sit with me as well. And, and other people it does, but I really enjoyed being able to figure things out on my own and, and have that autonomy to sit back as much as I hated it. Some days like, I don't know, I don't know how to do this race. I don't know the strategy for this. I don't know this, but having been asked questions, I can learn how to do it myself. And I think that was a really empowering thing at a young age that I was able to figure out throughout college and university as to what wasn't working and how can I pull back what, what I experienced as a younger athlete to utilize that? Cause that's what worked for me. Yeah. When did you figure that out? When did you, was there a moment where you're like, Oh man, this doesn't work for me. Yeah, honestly, uh, it was sophomore year. So second year of university. Um, I was just, I was not competing. Well, it was a rough year for me. I was training with the distance group, which means you're training, you know, double the mileage that you would any other group or discipline. And it was just depleting me in many ways. And I was, you know, too thin and not nourishing myself enough. I got really sick at one point and was out for like a week and a half, two weeks with like pneumonia or something. I forget at this time, but it was just a rough time. And I remember being like, hold on, my body is clearly shutting down here and there's something that's not working for me. Uh, and I had to step back and reassess, like, is it just physical or is this emotional? And like, what components are included in this and thinking to that time and being able to sit down with my coaches and say, Hey, you know, I, as hard as this was, cause trust me, this didn't happen overnight. The the pouting and the tantrums, inner, inner tantrums happened first, you know, internally before I had the, the guts to go talk in person or have a conversation. But when those conversations did happen in that open dialogue with the coach about something isn't working, I don't know what it is, but it's not working. And I feel burnt out and exhausted and I'm sick. And I'm also defeated mentally. Mm. And I don't feel encouraged to, or excited to be here. Like this feels like a job, a chore, like I have to do it. And at what point can I find that passion, that love again, and start to learn, like, why do I love to swim? What is it that I want to do here? Uh, and those conversations really shifted things. And by the time the, you know, it took a minute, but after my sophomore year, my junior and senior year were much much better after having conversations and understanding what is it that I do need as an athlete and how can I also understand the coaching style that I'm given and figure out a way to get, get what I need out of this so that I can learn to love this again. How did that conversation go down when you first brought up? <laughs> well, um, there's a couple different times that we had it, but I remember one vivid conversation where I came into practice, you know, when you're afraid, when any human's afraid to have a conversation, what's the first thing that sort of happens when you're around that person and you have this like awkward thing that you are resent, you have a lot of resentment, you're, mm -hmm. you're hoarding it inside of you and you're angry, but you don't want to let the person know. And I would just come in and 
I was pouting and quiet and, you know, obvious that I was wearing my emotions on my sleeve, that something was wrong. And that specific day, you know, what could I have done better, obviously (laughs) approached it, but I didn't. And so he approached me and was like, I don't like your attitude. You can leave. So I pulled my equipment bag and I was like, oh, I've never been kicked out of practice before, but here we go. So, you know, I went to the locker room and the women's coach came after me and we had a conversation there. And I just felt like, I don't, I don't know how to perform. I feel so much pressure. I feel like I'm not good enough. The messages I'm receiving aren't helping me right now. Like this is, it's just bringing me down and I want to be able to learn and make, make, um, learn from the feedback and make these changes. But I just feel like I'm being criticized and not. I'm not understanding what's happening here and I'm exhausted. So I had a conversation with him up. We went up to the office and, um, that exact day it was eight. I remember it was April 12th <laughs> and he took a post-it note and he wrote April 12th, whatever year it was, 2005 on there and pinned it to his board. And he said, today is the day that we make changes that we figure out how to do this better, both me and you, like, how can we do this better? Because I, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this in any other way, but it's like, I, I was like, it makes me feel weird to say this, but I was like one of the best swimmers on the team, you know, like I, I had to figure this out. Cause I, it was, I was there for the team, you know, like we have NCAAs, like I wanted to perform for them. So we had to figure this out or else I was going to quit. (laughs) I was going to walk out and never do this anymore. And so he said, today's the day that we'll figure this out. And today's the day that you'll remember that you will hear me say, you're going to make the Olympic team if you believe it. And I was like, all right, so I'll never forget this. And I'm just sitting there. Anyway, it was a three hour conversation. I'm not even kidding. It was just goals here. And then we would like, you know, I would cry and then he would be angry and then I would be angry. And then we would finally come to this conversation understanding of what is it that this athlete needs from me as a coach? And what can I do a better job of as an athlete receiving feedback and understanding the intention behind the feedback? So that was really, I mean, that was point being to answer your question. It was a long conversation. This stuff doesn't just happen naturally, you know, for whoever's listening, like this kind of stuff, when you are like in it and you are training for something massive and there's so much on the line and you are one of the star players or athletes of the team, like there's a shit ton of pressure and it's a lot and you, it can just break you down if you don't address it. And that's what I learned from that because so much, so many people just power through it until they break. And I think I had this intuitive sense that like, I cannot do that anymore. I'm already breaking. (laughs) Like I have to change this or I'm going to quit for sure. Um, and so that day really stood out to me that shifted a lot. Yeah. How do things change after? Um, I felt heard. I think Mm -hmm. I felt more confident that showing up as I was, uh, was okay Mm -hmm. and accepted. Uh, sorry. Yeah. What do you mean by showing up as, as you were? Yeah. The reason why a lot of this stuff happened was because I felt very misunderstood as an athlete. I, I wasn't the, the typical athlete where I knew the splits and times and could come in and rattle things off. And I couldn't train hard every day. I got broken down like the men did. Like I was always mm-hmm. broken down. I, I had to rest more. I felt, um, the way that I raced and competed was not out of this, like 
like I must win, like vicious Mm -hmm. attitude. It was this inner confidence that I had that I could really stabilize my experience in that and then perform. And it was really good. And I knew that I, I was good. And I think he wanted to extract out of me that like, be more of a bitch, like, perf- mm-hmm. you know, be, be harder, faster, stronger, like be better, you know? And I, and I just didn't have that. Like, I just knew that I could do it, but I think when he could accept me for who I was and the way that I operated and the way my brain operated, it was a completely different story. And it was a powerful feeling to feel understood. And it was a powerful feeling to see the changes happen to where, when we're doing split work and practice for people again, that don't understand swimming or haven't had a lot, it's like track when you do 400 or something, like you, you take splits instead of telling me times, he would tell me my tempo or my cadence or someone's on your butt, like, you know, keep it up good pace. Or you like the way that he would frame it was more of a, like a holistic abstract experience versus just a time and a number. Mm. And that was this huge game changer for me because I did not operate in numbers. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand like oh, this isn't working. So, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a really cool moment to feel heard and understood from, yeah. from him. Yeah. I bet like there's so many athletes that we work with that are been kind of forced to focus on percentages or forced to focus on similar split times like you got to maintain this pace of running you got to do this for how many reps like and it's this yeah it it doesn't work for them but they it seems to be promoted that that's the only way to so many people but it's like there's myriad ways it's a one size fits one approach like there's principles but there's application to the individual and that's far more important Absolutely. And that's a great point you make because it does work for some people. You know, my brother is all about it. Like he used to know all my splits before I ever did. He know he still knows all my splits. I couldn't tell you one of my splits, not one. And I think like even from the Olympics, no idea, <laughs> like no clue, because that's not the way that I raced. I raced through fluid. I raced through feel. I raced through, um, yeah, through feel, through experience, through imagery through visualization. Like I raced in that way. That was the way my brain worked. And and he was complete opposite. Like Mm. he could know what he was going to split and that's how he raced. And he made the Olympic team in 2012. Mm. So there's two examples of polar opposite people that can perform the same level with completely different strategies. And, you know, to this day, we still are able to help each other understand things in different ways because we have different brains that literally work in opposite circles like so um polar opposites that sorry go on no i should say do you think it's so important to acknowledge that every athlete will retain information differently and everybody will learn differently just as if we are in school and everyone has a different learning style and some kids learn through colors and pictures and some kids learn through graphs and charts and some kids learn through Mm -hmm. writing and reading and that's okay but it's the same as sport, like athlete literacy, like sport literacy is a very real thing that can be applied in a beautiful way to each individual athlete. If they really want to seek to understand themselves and how they learn um, and the mm. coaches can learn too. And it's a really, it's a cool experience once it happens. Yeah. Well, I suppose the religion of today's age is science really, and everything's quantifiable and everything's predictable. And we are kind of taught to measure things and say this is what we're aiming at um but there's so much to be said for 
the somatic knowledge that you have and there's so much to be said for that kind of the feeling the feeling of performing um and i think at some deep level that's all what always what we're going after as well it's like that feeling um so disconnecting from that seems like a a misstep yeah and the you know the quantifying of things is beautiful as well if mm-hmm. that's what helps people but i think that we have to rest on our feeling as athletes in many ways um because it it truly is a platform for so much more when you even when you describe how you feel in a race to a reporter, you know, like if they're going to ask, like, how did that feel? Like, how did it feel to win this or to do this or to have this happen? The response can be so fruitful and uh, incredibly powerful when you do speak from the heart and from that experience of feeling. Yes. You know, naming splits and times and data and quantification things are very, it's very cool too, but I do have a strong passion for the old school way of <laughs> feeling through sports. Yeah. Why is it that you have that strong connection to that? I don't know if it's again, that nature, that, that mm. nature feeling versus nurture. I don't know if I was just um, literally born into that body and into that soul of I'm a feeler. I feel my way through everything. And it doesn't jive with everybody. Um, you know, Carl Pally, my friend Carl Pally and I speak about this quite often because he's similar. Uh, he, you know, his whole mantra is, uh, you know, about feeling and about feeling is the ultimate way to perform and to achieve. And it again, it does not work for everybody because everyone is different. But I do think that if you have a superpower of being a big feeler and feeling your way through life in a way that's not uh, a detriment to you, uh, where it's overthinking and overfeeling and over stressing and worrying, but really just being able to trust the confidence of your body. I think that's the key. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, we find that feelers have a tendency to overfeel sometimes. Thinkers have a tendency to overthink sometimes. What are the downsides of being a feeler? Just that for sure, overfeeling, uh, stressing about everything that feels off, or yeah. assuming, jumping to conclusions. Hmm. Yeah. In sport or in life, like I feel this is off, so that must mean this. And jumping to that conclusion just because you feel that something is off. Um, I noticed that that this happens when we are disconnected from our bodies, though. When you feel connected to your body, there's less of a tendency to assume or to jump to conclusions because you are just ultimately connected (laughs) completely. Um, 
And what that feels like is that you're just steady, you're regulated, you're not over aroused, under aroused, but you feel confident in your body. And I think when you become one or the other over aroused, under aroused, or just dysregulated in general, it's very easy to overthink, overstress, and jump to conclusions about everything. An example, mm-hmm. uh, the Olympics. Olympic trials, I felt absolutely horrible in warm up. <laughs> and I remember being like, oh my gosh, I feel horrible. This must mean XYZ, blah, 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 blah. But then I sort of backed up and I remember in that moment feeling like I'm just not really connected. Like I'm, my brain is stressing about the future and my body's in the present, but like also my body's trying to be in the future. But then, you know, it, like there was this weird thing where I was like, I just need to center myself and breathe and be here right now because that's the reason why I'm stressed out. I'm over. And you had that, you had that awareness right then to do that. Yes, and I think where did you practice, learn that from? Uh, repetition. Yeah. I think repetition. Um, we had a really good uh, grasp of when we were training in college. We had a really good grasp of. Um, what tools would work as far as, you know, once I started to understand visualization and imagery and mm-hmm. breath work and stuff worked for me, I had a grasp of, of how that can help me calm down. Little did I know that's actually regulating your nervous system, which I didn't have that language for at the time, right? You just knew that those things would help you be present in the mm-hmm. present moment. But as I started to study more somatic experiencing and go down that path, as I got older, it started to make more sense to me as when you're dysregulated, your brain's going to do a whole lot of different stuff that you don't want it to do. Whether you're an overfeeler or an overthinker, your brain's going to go everywhere <laughs> because it's not connected with your body. Um, I, we had this drawing in grad school that was three stick figures, past, present, future. And there's one head. And every day at the beginning of class, one of my classes, she would say, where are you? Put the head on, like draw it on your paper, put the head on where you are today. So if your head is on the past, but we're actually in the present moment, we need to figure out a way to get those two aligned. If your head's over in the future and you're in the present, you have to figure out a way to get those two aligned because when your head and your body are doing two different things, it will cause that dysregulation. Um, So it was an interesting thing that I did all that before I really understood what it meant. Um, But we did learn those tools in order to become more available in the present moment to regulate something I don't want to um, miss out um, because you mentioned it in, in another podcast. I thought it was, it was such a fascinating piece uh, because we see it like frequently again with athletes about the relationship they have with um, people pleasing and performance. It's like with coaches, particularly with communities that we spend ourselves like, our time in, like once we get to a certain level, we feel like we can let people down or um, we can, we're not making people happy by um by performing a certain way or by being a certain person that's not necessarily by uh, i suppose by conforming to an identity that's not authentic um so do you mind sharing your experience with that please yes absolutely i think uh the story i told earlier with the coaches and mm. um before i had the courage to communicate that a big part of that was people pleasing and it was trying to pull myself into what everybody else wanted me to be and how I could fit in the mold of what the quote unquote successful athlete needed to be. And it, 
yes, you can take those things and and try them, (laughs) try them on for size. Like, what does it feel like to try that on? It didn't work for me, you know? And so I had to really figure out what does work for me. And that was when I had that conversation, but the people pleasing thing goes back. Gosh, I mean, that goes back to childhood. I think Mm -hmm. it's very different in this world now, but growing up in the eighties and then the nineties and the two thousands, can't even believe I'm saying that, but growing up in those times, it's just different. It was just completely different, especially with the concept uh, for women to just make sure you're good, just to play by the rules. Don't ruffle any feathers, be a good girl, you know, speak when it's your turn, like not, you know, but it's more of this energy of just be smaller. <laughs> and I didn't feel that really from my parents. I feel you feel it from society, right? Like you just feel it from just be less of you and be good and don't ruffle any feathers, don't rock the boat. And so I learned that behavior. And I think I was always afraid to speak up. I was afraid to say like, hold on, I, I have a question <laughs> like, or hold on. I have something that I want to say. Like that was very difficult for me for a long time. And I'm still healing from that. Like I still have moments where I'm like, Oh, I don't want to bother that person. I don't want to say anything or I don't want to bring this up. Cause it's, this just doesn't matter. I just need to drop it. It's fine. You know, it always comes back around to where you need to bring it up eventually, but that, that can run thick and deep. And I, I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I certainly do know a lot of my, my women friends, uh, appreciate this conversation because we have all gone through a lot with this and it's no one's fault. It's just the evolution of society and of culture and of the way that women can stand up. And, you know, of course men may have this too. I just don't know. I'm not, you know, I I don't have that experience, but I also do know that it is something that is extremely important to acknowledge so that you can move through that and heal that piece of it. Yeah. Speaking from like the, the male side that I think it's, it's almost like of the same vein, but slightly different. Like for me, it's more of like a, you're not good enough or you don't deserve yeah. to. Like that's what I, I see with guys a bit more, but it feels like that's different. And it's, it's something I, I, I really want to understand better for the female perspective. It's, it's something that like I can intellectually understand, but I can't feel it. Like I can't feel that. So what does it feel like to be in that place? Mm. Well, it certainly feels small mm. when you feel that you can't say anything because you don't want to upset somebody. Um, It certainly feels small when you do things because you think other people will want you to, you just recoil in a way. It it feels like you're in a shell (laughs) of yourself and in your body, you just, you know, you just get small, literally like there's a difference between shoulders back and upright and feeling tall and strong in yourself and then recoiling literally and hunching over and holding yourself smaller. And it is an actual thing. And there's, you know, research and studies on power posing and how that can make, you know, it really does open your body up and and that's all great and wonderful. And it's important to note that it takes a lot of rewiring of your entire system to be able to stand taller in yourself. And and that's why so much of, of this movement of 
humans stepping into themselves and speaking their truth and all of these terms we hear all the time, really what all of that means is it's everyone's able to start to realize if I wasn't heard when I was younger or at some point in my life, which we all have been there, how can I step into feeling heard now? And, and how can I start to exercise my voice and exercise my confidence in a way that feels healthy for me? Everyone's different, but I think it's, it's an introspective question to ask yourself is, am I truly able to step in and ask myself, am I being as big as I can here? Am I feeling as full in myself here? Am I standing as tall as I can? Or am I recoiling and becoming smaller so that other people accept me and love me because I'm less difficult, less, less of this. Um, It's a, it's a hard question to ask. Let's put it that way. And it's an even harder one to journal about (laughs) like, Oh, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to admit that I've been doing that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like where the more somatic side of things is coming in is really useful because it, it seems like th- the psychoanalytic perspective and kind of Carl Rogers popularizing, just listen, be a therapist, listen, and which is fantastic. For some people like 100% if it works, it works, but it seems like it was all very um, language based, but language is not the only tool we have to communicate. It's a great tool. It's a beautiful tool. It's a, so such a refined and precise tool if we use it properly, mm-hmm. but it's not, the only tool and it's not the way our body communicates to us either like it's not communicating thoughts thoughts happen later um they happen in a kind of more novel part of the brain they don't happen at that that deep stem so like i suppose i suppose the question is where where do we take this where where do we go with this or what's your perspective on moving forwards with this i think it's just back to the awareness piece i think when we have an awareness of what it is in our lives that is holding us back. We're able to make change. Where are you stuck? Where am I small? Where am I feeling like I'm recoiling and hiding behind whatever it is? Because that right there is a tough question because it challenges the ego. It challenges that confident ego that you have like no i'm fine like (laughs) uh, like, no way you know but again this goes back to that exact situation that i had in college and i still work through this to this day of where am i small where am i playing small where am i um what am i hiding from i actually had a really good friend ask me that about two years ago he said and it really rocked me. I was, I was like shook from it. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, what are you hiding from? Like straight up. And he was like, he was stern. And I started sobbing because it was just this moment of clarity to where the light bulb went off and I could recognize I am hiding from myself (laughs) from pure joy, from being able to be the abstract, free-spirited Caroline. And instead I'm trying to fit this mold that 
society wants me to be. And there's so many layers to that. I mean, it goes with relationships and family and friends and sport and identity and and all of it. But that question was so intense because I do think that if we're really real with ourselves, a lot of us are hiding from something. Like, what are we hiding from? And can that be something that we can sit with, become aware of, and then start to make changes so that we can all live bolder and bigger and brighter and step into really who we are and what works for us? Because it's not going to be what works for Sally or Joe or Jane or whomever it is. Yeah, that awareness piece is so powerful, like so powerful. And it seems like there's so many different routes into it as well. It seems like you're all trying to arrive at the same location and some people will go through a journaling route. Like that's where I, I started this kind of introspective journey. Um, and some people will go through a meditation route and some people will turn to psychedelics and some people will turn, like there's so many avenues, but it all seems like it's honing in on the same realization that we're trying to have, which is this kind of, the dissipation of ego, the dissipation of constructed thought patterns or socially constructed thought patterns, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And allowing yourself to fail. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And trying something new and avoiding the chase of what it all is and rather giving efforts to better understand what they are. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of ways to become aware. Like you said, there's a million different avenues to get there. And I don't know about you, but it's overwhelming at times. You're like, which one do I do? Where do I start? Like, am I supposed to intellectualize this? Am I supposed to like seek therapy? Am I supposed to do this? Am I <laughs> and it can become overwhelming. Um, but it's okay to try something and it not work for you. It's okay to fail at something. And like, I've done it a thousand times. I failed a million times and started to realize, okay, this doesn't work for me. What does work for me? Well, I know somatic therapy works for me. I know that. I know any body modality works for me, whether it's acupuncture, massage, um, all sorts of things that will help me connect. And so you start to figure out what works because you start to understand who you are at your best after these things. And then you, Oh, when did I feel my best? What was I doing? Mm. And that question can help guide you to choosing what it is that you want to try. And also when, when we feel your worst for you, like, it's like when you're forcing yourself to be quantifiable and when you're like kind of stepping away from that, that, that physical sensation freedom that comes with that, as opposed to strict rigor. Yeah. And also staying static because movement is fluidity. Movement is part of Mm. that experience of figuring out you know, what am I, what am I hiding for? Let me just get with my thoughts, go for a walk. But if I sit still and lay on the couch and stare at the ceiling, some days I'm like, I'm going crazy. I can't, my brain's going everywhere. I'm not connected. I got, I've got to move somehow in a light way to where I'm not crushing myself, but let me just go move. Let me get in the water. Let me go to the ocean. Let me go on a walk. Let me start to process what I'm experiencing in a way where movement is the king or queen of that experience. And that is a very somatic thing. That is a very feeler type thing. But again, that works for me. Journaling doesn't really work for me as much as moving does, for example. Um, so it's just, everyone's so different in that way. And it's the beauty of becoming aware and then trying something, failing, trying again, and then accepting what works for me is not going to work for everybody else. And that's okay. And if it does, and I can connect with somebody about it even better, (laughs) but 
it, it doesn't have to fit what society tells me or what this magazine tells me or what the internet tells me or what this coach tells me or that coach or this Instagram account. Mm-hmm. It, it feels to me like this, that Jordan Peterson spoke about this at length or kind of repopularized the idea of chaos and order and like the, the meeting place between them is a, is the place to be, but it seems like there's a natural proclivity that fits with your personality type or with your, um, yeah, with, with your authentic version of self that needs that balance not to be 50, 50, like there's, for me, like when I try and force and when I try and like be structured and I like, I will work from like eight in the morning till five in the afternoon and it won't break up and I like, will be like this. Then like my brain just becomes like, like Uh freaking out. Like I don't want to do it, but the irony is you put me like, if I go ski mountaineering or if I go surfing or if I do anything like that, or if I go for a run or a walk or yeah, just walk the dogs, like my mind clears and I have my best ideas. And I think yeah. it's the same for athletes too. It's like, if you're tr- like trying to force yourself into this one mo- modality of performing or introspection and mindset work or whatever it is that you're trying to work on, like if it's not the one size fits one solution, then like you need to move on. Absolutely. Yes. And I love how you framed that up with surfing and walking the dogs. It's the smallest things. It doesn't have to be something monumental, mm-hmm. but I do think that we have to think for ourselves a bit more and feel for ourselves and utilize the things in the environment that are giving us this information. It's wonderful. And it may not be the exact expectation or work the exact same way that you're hearing that it does. And you just have to feel your way through what works for you. Where does your somatic therapy start like where where's your starting place for yourself and like and also in like where do you recommend others start well I was actually working with a woman named Sarah Baldwin for a really long time um and now uh, it starts so many different ways for me but you know if I give an example of when I'm dysregulated or when I'm stressed and completely out of sorts (laughs) which happens you know when I don't expect it. My first, the first place that I start is with my breath, which we are all very aware of. And everybody talks about this, of course, but I actually, um, and this may sound weird to people or whatever, but I, um, I like shake my hands. Like, so I'm, I try and get like crap out of me. (laughs) That's like sitting in me, but like being able to just visualize things, leaving my body um, through that and through my breath, it's really helpful. And then I usually do deep breath work. Um, I actually do like some pelvic floor work where I lay on my back and breathe into my pelvic floor, which helps connect. Cause I, I noticed the pelvic floor and the jaw are connected. So when our jaws are clenching and when we are stressed, I do some of that pelvic floor breathing, which is really helpful. Um, and there's a lot of vagus nerve stuff you can do through vibration work, which really helps me. And these are all things that I do in the moment of that work for me. They may not work for everybody, but they are very helpful because it is something that will actually calm your nervous system down at least so that you can think and (laughs) operate properly. And then I move, I walk, I swim. I try and do something to get out of my head and into my body yoga. Um, 
but it's a long road and there's, there's no perfect way. And there's some days when I throw it all hands in the air and I don't want to do anything, you know, just want to lay on the couch and cry or, you know, something like that happens. I let it, I just let it happen the way it, it naturally will. And my body usually leads me to one of those things. What's the difference in life since starting a more kind of body aware practice? I feel more in control of myself, which is, of course, you know, releasing control is the thing we all talk about, but I'm talking about the um, brain to body connection. Mm. I feel together. I feel less scattered, Mm. mentally clear, less foggy. I feel that connectivity to where I am not, um, yeah, I'm I'm just not, I'm not over here. I'm not over there. I'm not everywhere, but I'm here right here in this present moment. I feel more of that. And I feel like I can think clearly in situations that do provide me to be at a high level of performance or stress or whatever that is. I'm able to have a clearer process thought processes. Um, that's the biggest thing I've noticed hands down is that ability to have clarity in the moment. Yeah. Cause I think we intuitively know the opposite of that. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's something like when you pick this up every few minutes without even realizing it, like that's, that's the opposite of it. That's my phone for everyone who's listening on, on audio. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like you, you just, it's, it's like you mentioned there being in control and it's almost being again, aware or, um, more aware of your choices and not defaulting into patterns. I find that if I'm, if I'm dysregulated, I will find myself falling into patterns of thought and behavior and physical sensation too, that are as good as unconscious. But yeah. when I'm better regulated, when I've kind of done breath work and I've been outside and slept well, all that kind of stuff. And when I've moved, I, I'm aware of the choice to take back control and do what's serving. Yeah. Awareness. Again, that level of awareness is there. It's at its peak prime time performance. (laughs) You're able to be aware at the best levels possible. That's what I've 100% noticed. And the ability to step back and zoom out. Mm. Yeah. The pressure is off. Yeah. You don't have to be like, um, actually someone who I want to speak to you about, Andrew Huberman, like he, like, cause I know yeah. he, he followed He's your awesome. account. Like he talks about that. Um, the kind of the focus and the error of focus and the, yeah, yeah the, the more stressed you are essentially the narrow your focus, yeah. but then yeah. the, the opening up and the, the kind of the perception that, that changes as you can take in more of your surroundings. Like that is yeah. just, to me, it's fascinating to, to be able to yeah. see differently, like what you literally see and interpret changes depending on your state. And one of the most beautiful things about Andrew Huberman's work is that he never makes someone feel like that is the only thing that they can do. Like when you listen to his podcasts or even read, it's very give it a try. If this works for you, if it doesn't, that's fine. But here's, here's the science behind it. You know, for me personally, this is what I do. It may not work for everybody. He always says that he always makes it feel welcome. Like all walks of life, all ways of doing it are welcome. This is just a perspective. And I really appreciate that in this day and age. I cannot stress that more because I have a really hard time personally with people just being like, this is the way you got to do it. 
And that's just it. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? What if that's not it? Like, maybe I'm too curious. And But I just, I do appreciate that about him a lot. Yeah. So I think that almost comes back to the coaching rigor and this is mm-hmm. the only way to go. And, and like from there's definitely been times when I figured something out and I thought like, this is the only way it's, it's got to be done. Like this is the truth, not my truth, <laughs> but the truth. And like, and people should just follow my word because I know best. And it's always coming from a place of insecurity for me. <laughs> like that's what I yeah. noticed when it's like, this is the way. And it's, it's the same with blokes that I knew from the military as well. It's like the blokes that were saying this, this is the only way you can do things and this is like the structure and like if you, if you don't do this then there's something wrong with you if those guys like they're the most insecure out of everyone <laughs> and it, right. the irony is yeah they're creating absolutely stability. yes absolutely it is interesting because when i catch myself doing that you're right the whole it's all rooted around insecurity and mm. rooted around that feeling of i don't want to lose this exact thing that i've figured out so you know, I want everybody to make sure they hear it. And that's really the truth of it too, is that we all just want to be heard yeah. and everybody just wants to be heard for what works for them. Yeah. And I maybe think that's if I what we're cling seeing. On, yeah, exactly. And maybe if I cling on to this identity a bit tighter, then people will see and hear me a bit exactly. around and eventually I'll be able to reveal myself. Which goes back to the people pleasing. Yeah. It's all a cycle. And I think, the, again, the beautiful thing about humans is that we're all more alike than we are different. And everyone just wants to be heard, accepted, and understood. And it comes out in different ways based on our life experiences. So when there's those shouting from the rooftops about a certain thing, it's the same thing as wanting to be liked and understood in someone else's way. So it's an interesting dynamic to think about. And it also helps you feel more human, that we're all in this together. Everyone's figuring out who they are, what we're all doing here, what we all want to be what success means, what the definition of that is, what identity means, what the definition of that is, um, and what purpose is, and what our personal definitions of that are too. Mm. And Rich does a great job talking about that specific thing is we're all here to figure it out. (laughs) Like every, no one's perfect. We're all figuring this out. If we can take what works and leave the rest, try everything you want, but make sure that you stay aware within yourself enough to know what's going to really speak to you and align with you and your values and your heart and your soul. And it takes practice, but it really does take tuning into who you are and tuning into yourself, tuning out the noise and focusing on what works for you and what you'll feel that alignment. It just feels different. Which can be is, is a scary thing to do, or I found it intimidating to do initially. Like, I, that's Very. my personal experience with it. It's like, because God knows what you're going to uncover. <laughs> it's usually yeah. less pretty than you think it's going to be, less tidy. Absolutely. Yeah. What excites you about the future of your, I suppose, area of research, area of interest? Mm. Well, we started our business when it was not popular to talk about mindset or mental health in sports or. Uh, cultivate that healthy athlete holistically. Uh, It wasn't unheard of, but it wasn't popular. Let's put it that way. So now it's booming. (laughs) And I think my field of work specifically is that, and it is a very powerful field that is gaining a ton of momentum and has a lot of uh, eyes on 
on that field right now. So that's a very fun thing to think about. What are the possibilities of the future of working with athletes on mindset development and mental wellness and well-being in sport? So much growth there that can happen. What does it look like when athletes know that they are more than an athlete but can also compete at the highest level? What does it know? What does it mean when we have uh, you know Wimbledon champions that are also lawyers or, you know, like, what does it mean when people can be more than one thing and and how can we tap into that? That's exciting to me personally. Um, it's also, you know, I, I do like the connectivity between athletes and creativity, um, athletes and art. So I'm interested in seeing that because that's something that I'm very passionate about. But all in all, I just, I'm curious to see where this field of work takes the world with athlete mental health and well-being, and, and starting to stress about it less, but just tap into the importance of it more. Mm. Yeah. It seems like we're at a fascinating crossroads. Like the, it's like, it's at this point now where like, it almost like there's no choice, but to face it head on. And it's been pushed aside for a long, long time, as yeah. you found out, and countless others found out that when you get yeah. to that high performance, it's almost like sacrificing mental health is part of the buy-in that so yeah. many people assumed was essential. Um, yeah. But it doesn't seem to have to be the cost. It doesn't seem to be the cost of entry that you have to suffer as much as you think you do. Like, And sure, there's hard work involved, there's challenges, there's overcoming limitation, but it doesn't seem like it seems like suffering is optional within that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was Andrew Huberman just posted about that the other day. I don't know if you saw it, no. but it was, you know, we're hardwired to, you know, the, the suffering piece is only when we find the success mm-hmm. or when we find, you know, but it was something along those lines. I'd have to pull it up to remember the specifics, but just that that is what we deem uh, the entryway into mm-hmm. anything is if we suffer hard enough, and it will be there. Suffering is not going to go anywhere. Like we're not going to avoid it. It's going to be there. It's just a matter of how we can um, learn to succeed without having that uh, be the badge of honor all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's just inevitable that it's going to be there. We don't have to to flaunt it or make sure everybody knows it in a way. I think that uh, can be a detriment and and start to cause that decline of mental health in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's an essential skill to develop to learn to overcome hardship, and it's yeah, it is one as a badge of honor or or something that is seen as the only way or your only way of displaying success. How much you can suffer, and yes. yeah, like it took me a long time to realize that how much I suffer is not how valuable and worthy I am. Worthy you are, absolutely, yes. I'd like to wrap up with a few questions. Uh, cool. <laughs> I ask most people, what books have you gifted most to other people? Ooh. Uh, Eastern Body, Western Mind is one of my favorite books. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score. Um, I've gifted uh, The Untethered Soul far too many times back in my college and post-collegiate years. Um, a lot of people ask me about books on somatic experiencing or their you know, books thereof. And so waking the tiger is a good one uh, by Peter Levine. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, and also 
the war of art, anything on resistance. I really like the war of art. So that's an easy book to gift because it's so small and <laughs> easy to find. <laughs> so if, if you, um, I think Stephen Pressfield and Seth Godin's work as well goes hand in hand. Have you explored that? Yeah. Seth Godin's amazing. I get his newsletter yeah. every day. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it's so beautifully and elegantly written. Like if I can write one sentence as well as he writes, yeah. like I'll just be blown away. Phenomenal. Um, um, yeah. We've touched on what habits you do for your own mental health and performance, like movement. Is there anything else? I'd say just keeping on top of my health in general. Um, yeah. I see a functional medicine doctor. So I go to her every couple months just to check on things. And, and I think that support's helpful, just knowing someone's there for you, but also connecting, Hey, what's showing up on my body? Is this showing up for a physical reason? Or is there an emotional attachment to, to why this is so tired or what's happening here? Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised at lowering stress will change blood work in a rapid wow. month or so. <laughs> so it's it's a very interesting dynamic to see it all come together. So that's a really big piece of my mental health is making sure that my physical health is is feeling in in alignment. Um, and I think just something I'm working on right now is uh, exploring just better relationships. I, for a long time, I was going through such a difficult time. I sort of pushed everybody away and did my own thing. So exploring how to have not, not be so introverted and hide away and hide behind everything, but really be out there and, and have um, a balance of the two. Cause I'll always like my own space and time and quiet time. And it's nice to be able to have relationships where I don't feel like I have to explain myself to everybody all the time and just, just able to be and enjoy life. Yeah. That's a topic for another podcast yeah. of at least it's two hours. So important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could go into that forever. <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining me like this in another podcast that i've recorded like the i just want to get onto the lot and like this is fantastic and I, I know it's there's going to be people who listen to this who are kind of starting this journey or somewhere on this journey and it's going to completely resonate with them so thank you so much sharing that and you can't do that without a vulnerable authentic expression of your story um so thank you and yeah. then finally where can people find out more about you and where can people find out about your work yeah. So, uh, I'm mainly on Instagram. I'm not super active on other social medias. <laughs> Try and keep it simple. So Caro Burkle, C-A-R-O. And then my last name Burkle. Um, and then our work is rise athletes. So R I S E athletes, and that is all channels for the most part. Um, but yeah, those are, that's my main one. I dabble on Facebook from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> I just stick to Instagram trying to be better about social media usage. Yeah. Um, but then I have my website, carolineburgle.com and then what um, rise is rise dash athletes.com. Awesome. Thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. If you want to stay up to date with all the newest interviews and grow the mindset you need to become limitless, make sure you subscribe to the show and follow MindsetRxd on Instagram. That's MindsetRxd.